snoring is a noise that's made because that child is choking themselves. So if it's not okay for someone to come into the room and choke the child, it's not okay for the child to do it themselves. Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir. And this episode, we're going to actually replay something, one of the most popular episodes from the past. And the reason for this is I keep seeing and hearing and talking to patients and people about sleep apnea, about airway, about all the different things related to this. And it's something that I feel that we don't inherently have a good understanding of. So to make sure people are aware of one of my favorite episodes we recorded, we're rerunning the episode with Dr. David McIntosh. David is a pediatric ENT, so he's not a dentist, but he has a particular interest in this and educating dentists about airway, snoring, sleep apnea, and pediatric-related issues with this. We've also recently done a series with Dr. Damien Teo. Um, We do bruxism, TMD, and soon we'll be releasing sleep apnea. And then also one with Dr. Harry Ball, who is an educator particularly around mandibular advancement splints. So if you're interested in this, I hope we've got some of this covered to help you understand this topic. I hope you find this episode as engaging as I did. David is a great speaker um, and he really, really tunes us into this important topic. So enjoy the podcast and we'll catch you next week. What are you focusing on this year? What are the CPD topics, the disciplines that you really want to get better at? And how do you find all the information out there on those topics? cpdjunkie.com.au is made to be a comprehensive directory of CPD in Australia and New Zealand. We created this because we found this frustrating and now there is a system where you can be alerted if there's topics that come up that you are interested in. Make an account at cpdjunkie.com.au and update your alert settings. Every month on the 20th, we send an email sending you the information specific that you want to know about. Interested in communication, aesthetics, and orthodontics? Same. Update your alert settings now. Take your CPD to the next level with cpdjunkie.com.au. So welcome, Dr. David McIntosh, to the Dental Head Start podcast. How are you tonight, David? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. I, obviously, I chatted about this in the intro, but David, you're a pediatric ENT and that's pretty exciting because that's something that crosses over uh, with dentistry and it's something that we don't get taught particularly well um, at dental school. They, they cover it in maybe a lecture or two and, and I, from what I've heard from you and what I've read from you, it's pretty important. So, I, I want to ask as a first question, is it okay if a kid is snoring? Uh, the, the short answer is it depends on the circumstance. So if their snoring is related to the fact that they have a cold at the time uh, or that they've had just an absolutely um, you know, very busy, exhausting day and they're snoring under that circumstance um, and that's the only circumstances that they're snoring otherwise they're nice and quiet, then that's okay. But if they're snoring or what we call habitual snoring, um, it's the same with mouth breathing, habitual mouth breathing. And by the way, that doesn't mean habit. Um, it just means persistent. Um, we, we know that the science shows if they're doing that four nights of the week or more, and it may even be only two weeks a night, but we know definitely four nights of the week or more, that puts them into territory where they're at risk of the consequences of um, what is you know airway obstruction? So snoring is the noise that's made because they can't breathe properly. So I think many parents would be happy at the end of the day 
if they were putting their children to bed and someone was going into their bedroom and choking their children through the night. Um, you know, most parents, if they were to witness that, would be very much proactive about tackling that person, getting them out of the room and never letting them back in the house again. <laughs> but the paradigm is, 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 is really um, much the same. Snoring is a noise that's made because that child is choking themselves. Um, so if it's not okay for someone to come into the room and choke the child, it's not okay for the child to do it themselves. That is such a it's a graphic way to put it, and it really brings it to um, the importance of it. I've heard you say that before, and I remember being like, "Wow, that's an amazing way to put it." Uh, it definitely makes it important in our mind. We are going to cover a lot of stuff on um, obviously snoring, airway, um, lots of different topics. But I actually want to let's take a little step back, David. Let's get to know you a little bit. You're a pediatric ENT. Where are you from? And how did you get to becoming a paediatric ENT? Yeah, absolutely. So it's an interesting sort of journey and story. Um, for, well, for some people it might be. <laughs> so uh, I'm originally from Adelaide, um, so hopefully most people won't hold that against me. Hi, everyone from Adelaide. Uh, and uh, as long as my way in training, uh, actually, you know, part of the way I put myself through medical school was that I was also a swimming instructor. So swimming instructor, um, you're very used to dealing with kids um, just comes with the territory, and often these kids are, um, you know, scared of the water, worried about the water, um, need to be introduced, and, and and so forth. So you become a really good child psychologist uh, as a uh, as a swimming instructor. <coughs> so so working with children was just a natural thing uh, from that point of view, and then uh, yeah, go through medical school, and everyone has the sort of similar experience that you would have had. Uh, is that you spend a little bit of time together as medical and dental people um, and then you split off and then all of a sudden there's this great divide uh, within the body. Um, and um, like you said, you might have got you know a little bit of ENT along the way where we got a little bit of dentistry, um, probably enough to sort of have the skills to count the teeth um, is probably as, you know, as far as it goes realistically. And you get through medical school. And as I was going through medical school, I was lucky, uh, as, as everyone has these moments in life, uh, where I had some lectures uh, given uh, by two uh, ENT guys uh, who were still doing their training. And the, these guys really stood out. The, these guys were happy, enthusiastic. And basically, it's just one of those moments where we go, I want what they've got. Um, so, Did you ever have any personal reasons to bring you into ENT or was it really just fortuitous yeah no not not really it really it, it really was just fortuitous um that, that I just happened to come across these guys and they gave us the lectures and just their enthusiasm and and, and so forth just shone through so much uh that um it was, it was I remember going home to, to my mum and saying I want to be an ENT so, so that that so that was that 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 happened in the fourth year of medical school. Uh, the next thing that sort of happened in life that sort of shaped this whole story is for my twenty first birthday, uh, I got a book. It was actually the Fred Hollows uh, book um, about Fred Hollows and his work that he'd done for Indigenous kids and and and, and abroad, um, and that got me inspired with from the sort of doing the Indigenous things. So all these things started to click together, and then. Yeah, went through med school, did the, the, the hospital stuff. How'd you go in med school? Uh, I did okay. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I say that because you are someone right now who's doing a lot. You're juggling a lot of balls. You've got private practice, um, a lot of um, obviously teaching, um, dentists, GPs, everything. You've written a book, which we'll get into, which is pretty incredible just having the time to do that. Were you always working this hard through through medical school and specialist? Or? Well, I, well, I was. Basically, I went to uni and then I'd be working. So, so you know, some of that stuff I'd be getting up and, and my shift might be from 5 in the morning to 8 in the morning and then go to uni. Um, and then weekends, I'd be working weekends. So, uh, yeah, you know, sort of being studious and industrious is, is, is uh, kind of uh, how I'm wired. It's in your nature. Yeah. So, how do you sleep? Do you sleep well? <laughs> you have to. You, yeah. You, you, yeah, yeah. You, you got to because uh, sleep is so important, um, as as we'll come to, and it's it's quality and quantity. And this the, the the research out there and the science is so overwhelming that that really to ignore it is um, at your own peril. Just as an aside, and I, I didn't even think of this until just now, but I'm reading a book at the moment called. Um, uh, why we sleep i believe it is do you know do you know the one i'm talking about um it's i should get it i'll put it in the show notes but i cannot believe what i'm reading um it's uh, i think it's written by a sleep physician and the 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 evidence is that a sleep physician from the uk Oh, that sounds right. I'd ha- I'll have to check this in the um, in the show notes. Um, and it, it's incredible, and it's really making me think. Wow, I really can't cut even an hour, and I don't function well without it anyway. So um, uh, I don't plan on it, but it's it's really incredible. So it's a, it's such an important topic. Um, it, and it's a massively neglected topic in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, as I do in some of my talks, so, you know, people talk about the three pillars of healthcare. So, you know, people talk about diet, exercise, mental health. Um, the reality is if you don't get good or proper sleep, um, you're going to wake up tired. You're not going to have energy to exercise. Uh, you're going to make lazy food choices. So there goes your diet. Um, you're going to be tired and grumpy. There goes your mental health. Um, so, you know, it really is the four pillars, you know, that, that sort of, you know, come together. That's exactly what I'm getting from uh, this book and it seems that it has so many impacts on every other area of our health, yeah. both directly uh, and um, just because you're tired, you make these poorer choices as well. So, um, the, the book is called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Okay, yeah, no, no, I haven't read that and, one but yeah, I know who you're talking about. I'm about halfway through it. It's it's pretty incredible. So, so I've kind of derailed your story. We've got to, um, I guess, uh, specialist training. Let's put it there. Where did you train? Yep, 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 yep. So, again, all, all done through South Australia, so the, the training program there. That included uh, six months uh, in the Northern Territory, so uh, Darwin. So, again, did a lot of Indigenous stuff, and that included uh, jumping on light aircraft and flying out to these remote places and just, just meeting these incredible people um, and, and living in incredible places uh, and and sort of working hard, trying to sort of get those kids um you know, ears better, really. They've got massive ear problems um, for all sorts of reasons. And then, yeah, finished my training and then I went over to New Zealand, uh, the eighth state of Australia, uh, according to some. And uh, <laughs> hello, New Zealand. Uh, so I, I uh, lived in Auckland uh, for a year and went to uh, and I did purely paediatrics. It was just a whole year of paediatrics. And that was already centered on the fact that airway, kids' airway stuff was my thing. 
and I did a whole year of paediatrics and then I came back uh, to Australia, to, to Queensland, um, which is where I've been since. And the, the sort of, you know, the things, again, that, that's, that is ENT is a big specialty and there's lots of things that you can choose from and, and it's, it's a too big a specialty to do everything. It'd be like being an orthopedic surgeon that does everything. It, it, they don't exist. You know, you'll have people that will do things, but then you'll have someone that just does ankles or someone just does hands or they just do spines and they, they zero in on focus on that. And it's the same with ENT. Like you could just do ears, you could just do sinus. Um, I, I just did paediatrics. But the other thing that I also do uh, is, is uh, and it's just, it's just a reflection on just who I came across in my training, um, I do the, the sinus stuff, and that's because uh, in, in Adelaide with the South Australian Training Program, uh, one of the guys uh, that was uh, the, one of the surgeons there um, is one of the top sinus surgeons in the world, um, you know, and we had him on tap. And the other thing that happened was the sleep. So there was an ENT from Adelaide who went over to Stanford, um, learnt from the pioneers of, of sleep apnea surgery, so Riley and Powell, and brought that back to Adelaide and benefited from that as well. So I sort of was, was just, you know, in the right place at the right time for the right reasons because all these things intermingle and intertwine. So I get to do the paediatrics, I get to do the sleep apnea, I get to do the nose and sinus stuff. Um, I don't do the throat cancer stuff. I don't do, you know, the major ear stuff. There's other people that do that, so it's okay. So, you know, sort of spread it everywhere. It sounds like Adelaide was a good place to train for ENT. Well, it was, it was brilliant just in terms of what was there. Um, but, you know, New Zealand was fantastic as well. The the, the hospital in New Zealand is called the Starship uh, Children's Hospital. Um, a phenomenal children's hospital and lots of multidisciplinary things. So when I was there, for example, uh, there was a multidisciplinary uh, clinic that we're doing for kids that were drooling. So these were kids with craniofacial problems, uh, cerebral palsy, a um, range of other things. And it was me, a dentist, and a speech therapist. And we were just basically appraising these kids and working out, right, is this, is this kid drooling and mouth breathing? Is it because they've got an EMT obstruction? Do we need to unblock the, those things to get the function better? And then the uh, dentist would be looking at it from the dental point of view and looking at uh, skeletal form and so forth and looking at where there were issues there. And then the speech therapist was looking at the soft tissues and saying, you know, look, this is how the tongue's moving or not moving properly. And it's just that integrated approach. Uh, we, we had these kids, um, you know, we could improve their quality of life. And, and that's, the, that's the one thing I do. I, I don't really save people's lives. I'm, I'm not out there curing cancer. Um, I'm getting in there making their lives better because they can breathe better. Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting um, interesting point you bring up and I think it's something that's different between dentistry and medicine is that you often have these integrated clinics and you work with other specialties and you're getting their input and we're often uh, in our little silo of a private practice and it's maybe one, two or three or 10 dentists, it doesn't matter, but there's not a lot of interaction and that's something I think we miss out on. So um, I'm a little envious of that, but we need to make it happen. Yeah, well, it depends. I mean, that, that that's in a hospital environment, realistically. I mean, it doesn't, mm. you know, that's that's where these sorts of things happen. And that's where hospitals are great for those sort of complex cases where you can bring people together um, and, and so forth um, and, and have these clinics and then have them as clinics that are centres of excellence for that particular thing. Um, you know, it's the same, you know, we, we did vascular malformations as well. 
Um, so, you know, we did a clinic there. So that was, again, the ENTs, um, uh, the, the general surgeons. Uh, sometimes we had the interventional radiologists. And that was the, that was the amazing thing about that hospital is, is it was so well integrated uh, with, with everybody and everybody just worked together. There was no egos they sort of left at the door it's just like just let's just everyone just do what you do and do it well and and it was a fantastic place to work it pushes the knowledge base forward as well oh well the, the, because new zealand's so small uh, as a country the, 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 what surprises a lot of people is the knowledge that, that's within it and that's just a function of fact that you know where i worked at um they'd all all been and worked at the big centres that people talk about in paediatrics you know the sort of place where you would go to go and do a fellowship well, that person had already been there and that person had already been to the other one and that person had come from. So so it was this concentrated, um, you know, experience um, in, in this little, uh, you know, hospital uh, of sorts um, relative to, you know, what people judge as being big or small hospitals. But it was phenomenal. It really was. So, um, so then I had to go and relearn adult ENT after that again and... Uh, and so forth, which... Um, so, for how long did you then go back and do adult? Are you doing adult ANT now? Well, I do adults in terms of the nose, the sinus, and the uh, sleep apnea mm-hmm. uh, because that, 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 that stuff um, is, is pretty easy to hold. The, um, the major tricky ear stuff um, I don't do. I don't do enough of it to maintain. So, again, but there's people that do it all the time. So, um, if someone can do something better than me, I, I just, you know, patient basically gets handed over as if they were, you know, a brother or a sister to say, look, you're much better going to this person. This person does it all the time and you'll get a better result. I, I don't have a problem with that. No, exactly. And you get, they get a better result. You get better at what you do because you do more of what you do. So there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, are you still doing some of the indigenous work at the moment? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we were quite lucky because. Uh, when I came to the Sunshine Coast, I, uh, I walked into the Indigenous Health Clinic, um, and this is—I didn't have my clinic set up or anything. And I just walked in and, and just went to the front desk and said, "Hi, my name's David. I'm an ENT. Just wondering if you can use me at all." And um, once the person recovered from the shock of that, and so they were just flabbergasted. No one, no one had ever done this. They were just blown away. Um, and stuff, and they said, well, you know, we've just done this screening thing that we've just checked, you know, the kids, Indigenous kids around the community and 25% of them are failing their, their hearing checks. I said, wow, that's that's a big problem. Do you want me to check them out? I've gone, yeah, but they can't afford to see you. And I said, well, that's, that's fine. I'm not going to charge you for it. And then when they picked themselves up the floor again a second time um, and so forth, So and, that, and that's how it started. So, and, and along the way, we've got uh, federal funding to, to do uh, programs so that, that we've actually delivered uh, surgery in a private hospital, uh, no cost at all to the families at all. Um, I, I just bulk bill it, the anaesthetist bulk bills it, the hospital um, takes a, a, a lower pay rate um, so that we can put the work through. And, um, <coughs> yeah, from that point of view, um, we've, we've got these kids that, um, you know, at the moment our public weight system uh, for, you know, people is about 600 days for an appointment. These kids can come and see me. It's just for a consultation. So these kids come and see me for free and we, we put them onto the public side of things just in case um, because the, the funding's sporadic. But when the funding comes through, we're like, bang, all right, off we go. And those kids are fixed, you know, pretty quick. And the, the feedback and so forth from the families is just fabulous. And 
um, that, that, you know, they're so grateful because their kids are just struggling at school and, and for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, I was going to say that. Huge impact on learning, obviously, and then that changes behaviours. And this, this unfortunately is the ridiculous thing. I mean, if you're any sensible health economist in terms of what's it costing to do this program versus what are the out life time outcomes? Uh, it's the same. It's the same with kids that can't breathe properly. You know, the consequence is the same. You can't breathe properly. You can't hear properly. Your concentration, focus at school is is affected. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is what I say is that, you know, I don't save people's lives um, and so forth, but basically my object is to help this person achieve their full potential so that instead of them being the person that's going to break into your house and, and steal the DVD, um, they're going to be the one that it's going to be the sentencing judge for the person that does the same. Um, and, you know, I say that sort of say lightheartedly, but it's, it's serious. You do turn these kids' lives around. It's a dramatic statement, but there's no doubt that it does make those kinds of changes. If yeah. you can then focus at school, you can then, you know, get the jobs, you can pr- produce in the economy and, and it goes full circle. It's a no-brainer, really. It, it really is a no-brainer. Um, you know, we improve education outcomes, which we improve, it means we by default improve your employment outcomes. Um, we also, by default, um, reduce the chances of you having issues um, uh, with, uh, you know, the law, basically. If, if we look at uh, Indigenous people that are incarcerated, so those that are in jail, um, around about 80% of them have not got normal hearing. Wow. <laughs> it's clearly a pivotal thing. I mean, we, we all sort of, you know, noticed on the, on the t- you know, the, the news at the moment sort of going about, you know, and then this, this story does the circle every now and then about, you know, private versus public schools and, you know, is it worth it in terms of the education outcomes and everything and, you know, that, that debate aside, pretty much speaking, every parent wants their kid to have what they think is the best opportunity to succeed and, and that's what I'm about is, is that I don't really care you know, where kids are on the spectrum because we are all different. You know, we're not all going to become dentists. We're not all going to become ENT surgeons. We're not, you know, we're all going to get somewhere. But if there's something as simple as not being able to hear properly or not being able to breathe properly that undermines your brain function and your your school performance and ability that was very easily, you know, remedied and, and, and sorted, um, you know, that's not fair to that person. So um, just get in there and help them. Absolutely. These things we're going to talk obviously from a dental point of view, particularly with airway, and we're going to get to how to identify it and all all the rest of that. But I want to get an idea around um, what's your opinion? What do you think dentists need to know about airway? Let's think about kids because that's obviously your primary topic. What is it that dentists need to know? What is it that they need to be looking for to pick this stuff up? Okay. So what I encourage dentists and when i say dentists i think i think we, we need to expand that so it's it's dentists it's hygienists it's therapists um your style of healthcare is different to ours so the medical style of healthcare in the mainstay is reactive illness-based care so whereas dentistry is predominantly focused on preventative care um and then and screening and then fixing as it's found. I mean, you will have the patients that don't do anything and then they just turn up as the emergency. And then you have a look and they've got, you know, really bad problems from from years of neglect. 
uh, and so forth. And, you know, all of a sudden you're expected to fix that, which, of course, you can only do your best. So, so from a dental point of view, your, your mindset of healthcare is actually a lot better. You know, you really are into wellness, um, whereas we are into sickness. That's, that's, that's the sort of difference between, the, I think, the medical versus the dental model. As a consequence of that, though, you have people coming in every six months, you know, who, you good patients are coming in every six months and just getting things checked over, not because they had a problem, but just because they want to make sure there's not a problem. If there is something, it can be nipped in the bud. So from that point of view, uh, that puts you in the driving seat to then do things and screen for things that um, medical doctors, when they see a sick kid, it's like, oh, yep, you've got an ear infection, here's some antibiotics, um, off you go. And, and that's sort of, it's just that one problem, one solution thing. Now, I don't mean to sort of you know, generalise, but that's what it can be sometimes. It's, it's, it's not a, look, your kid's okay, you know, I just wanted to bring them in to make sure everything was okay and so forth and, and ask about things. Now, we used to have that. It used to be what was called the four-year-old health check. Uh, and when, when that was sort of surveyed in terms of what was being asked about, um, sleep was only being asked about by 10% of medical doctors. So, so that's just to emphasise to the dental community how there is this big hole that, that kids are falling through um, just because it's, it's not something that's on the medical health system sort of radar because the focus is all, you know, about tonsillitis, you know, because that's the thing that sort of gets recognised as a sickness, um, whereas in actual fact it's all about breathing um, is, is, you know, far more important than tonsillitis. Just as, a, as an aside, that's often something where we get a bit caught up when we send someone to a GP because they'll say, oh, the tonsils are big, but they haven't had tonsillitis or they haven't had four, uh, I'm, I'm not sure of the old statistics, like four in a year or something like that. And you think to have four in a year, you've, you, you've got to be consistently sick. How can you wait that long? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll give you some insight just to sort of um, clarify that and we, then we'll go back to the, dent, the question of what do the dentists need to look out for because that's a nice way of bringing it together. So... I like my analogies, all right? So, so so, this is my analogy, all right? If you wake up one morning, go to the bathroom, and the toilet's blocked, okay? It's full, full of water, all right? Do you wait for the sewage to build up for a certain point before you call the plumber in? Or do you go, toilet's blocked, we better do something about this? Yeah, definitely doing something about it. That is a great analogy. <laughs> So it's the same with tonsils, all right? One reason that we take tonsils out is because they are too big, because they are causing blockage. Another reason we take them out is because they are unhealthy, so they're getting infected, they're getting the tonsillitis. Now, when it comes to the tonsillitis side of things, just to give you some numbers, and everyone's different, these are just my numbers, but you look at frequency and severity. And what I look at is six in a year or eight spread over two years or nine spread over three years as being sort of a reasonable sort of point to say, you know what, enough's enough here. Yeah, we're sort of convinced that this is not settling down. Um, you know, this is more than just a bad run now. Um, so that's sort of just to give you an idea about the tonsillitis thing. So we sort of, we are pretty conservative when it comes to the tonsillitis side of things. But for kids, and certainly in my books and, 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 and for paediatric ENTs and the research, 80 to 90% of the tonsils I'm taking out, there is no history of tonsillitis at all zero cases of tonsillitis and in a way it's like that toilet like you don't want these kids to start getting tonsillitis they're already 
big and swollen, the last thing they need is tonsillitis to make them even bigger and even more swollen. So it's a silly thing to wait for. Is that decision based on um, the size alone or is it actually causing an airway issue? Um, Size is a big part of it, but it's not the whole story. So um, when when you look at these things, um, and so let's let's go back a step. Let's talk about history. We'll, We'll go history exams so we do it in a clinical order. So the history for dentists, all right, if I was just going to do, you know, what, what does a dentist need to walk away from this if we're going to keep it simple? It's really easy. Does the kid snore or mouth breathe? That's it. If you want to go one step further, you can ask whether they actually stop breathing at night. Um, and, and what we've just asked about just with that simple thing is about sleep-disordered breathing. So sleep-disordered breathing is a spectrum. It starts at mouth breathing it goes to snoring and it ends at sleep apnea. Yep. All right. And any child that's on that spectrum, then you go the next step and say, all right, this child has airway obstruction. Is there an obvious impact on that? And from a history point of view, you're looking for sleep disruption. Okay. So then, so now I'm going to take everyone the next level. So for sleep disruption, what you're looking for is, is there something that is causing abnormal sleep behaviors and patterns? So that is things like sleepwalking sleep talking, night terrors, and the one that blows a lot of dentists away, especially the ones just coming out of uni, is teeth grinding. Okay? Teeth grinding is taught that it's a stress response, uh, that it's a uh, movement disorder, uh, and so forth, and that it's normal for kids to do it and they'll outgrow it. Um, as, as I've been saying and, 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 and consistently proving with all the research that I share, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's good fun because I'm actually seeing the rest of the world follow, follow suit. So, so we're getting That's there. Nice. Um, yeah. 80% of kids that are teeth grinding that have an airway problem will stop grinding their teeth once that airway problem is fixed. Yeah, that's incredible. All right, 80%. So, so, so there is not a single, with, with all due respect, there's not a single dentist that has a cure for bruxism. You have a management for it. You throw a guard in or whatever, but you don't have a cure. 80% of kids grinding their teeth with an airway problem will stop doing so. So all of a sudden, bruxism just became a symptom. And I think that's what bruxism needs to be viewed at. So that's going to be another take home. Uh, bruxism is a symptom of something. And it, it can be psychological stress and so forth. But in kids, as I often say, it's pretty unusual that a four-year-old is, is worried about their mortgage, their girlfriend, and their job. <laughs> so what would you put the statistics on, though? If you see a kid that is, is, is obviously grinding and they're, you know, they're wearing the deciduous dentition down pretty quickly, um, would you say you know, 80 90%, 70% uh, probably have a sleep disorder breathing? Yeah, it, look, it, it, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, if, if we go to population numbers, we know that around about 20% of kids have sleep disordered breathing. And the population numbers on teeth grinding are reportedly about 40% uh, at some stage. So um, there's going to be an overlap there of, of some degree. And there's other reasons for teeth grinding, so that's why I'm you know, not putting everything in the same bucket. But Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you can ask those simple questions. Um, you know, are they mouth breathing? You know, how's their sleep? And just ask those simple questions. Yeah, and then and then one of the sort of silly, one of the silly things that people will say back is, well, if they're mouth breathing and grinding their teeth, then it doesn't make sense. So that's silly. 
because <laughs> if their mouth's open, how do they grind their teeth? And, and this is where people need to understand there's different stages of sleep. And the stage of sleep when they grind their teeth is when the muscles contract, not when the muscles relax. So that stage of sleep is when the muscles contract, that brings the jaw together, and then they start grinding. And, and the pattern is very well documented, is, 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 and it's all triggered by low oxygen levels. So the first thing that happens is they get an oxygen dip. That triggers a sympathetic nervous system response because the brain goes, all right, oxygen's down. And what that does is it increases the heart rate and the blood pressure. That then triggers a reflex that feeds through the trigeminal nerve, so from the heart to the trigeminal nerve. And the trigeminal nerve goes to the muscles of mastication, which is your grinding. And it follows that pattern. You go low oxygen, heart rate goes up, grind. How often per hour would this cycle go through? Uh, well, I mean, what we're talking about in terms of these stages of sleep. So you, uh, for kids, they usually go through six to eight stages of, 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 of sleep, uh, which means that, you know, they'll, they'll have, um, based on how the architecture goes back and forth, um, you know, a good number of periods of time through the night where they potentially will be grinding their teeth. Yeah, but not all the night, which is, that's a really important point and something I learned, um, well, relatively recently actually. Um, and it, it's important because we'll get patients all the time say, oh, or, or particularly even the partner will say, oh, no, they don't grind their teeth. And it's, Well, they're not going to be grinding their teeth all the time. Um, sorry, and I'm, I'm referring a little bit to adults in this way as well, but it's the same, it's a crossover, correct me if I'm wrong. But it, So it's, it's a small period of time. Yeah, no, no, absolutely right. Yeah. Well, the other thing that doesn't have to be grinding, it can just be clenching. You know, you know, and this is the thing is, is it's a whole spectrum. Um, you, you can get micro-mandibular movements, you know, is, is the bottom end and, and the bruxism is the top end. And, and you've got the graduations throughout. Yeah, so it's a big highlight. If we see kids with significantly worn teeth, there's something, there's questions to ask there. There's things we should be investigating. Yeah, definitely questions to ask, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and again, we'll come back to that from an examination point of view um, in due course. Uh, with, with regards to the examination, sorry, the history again. Um, so that's your sleep disruption. The other things can be just waking up through the night, bedwetting, uh, sweating through the night, and tossing and turning through the bed. So they're all clues that the sleep is being disrupted. The, one of the big red flags, big red flags for anybody, um, is that if anybody is waking up in the morning feeling tired there's a problem there then that's a red flag symptom now there's lots of reasons for feeling tired and you look at sleep quality and sleep quantity and other medical and health reasons for being tired but if you are waking up tired that's a red flag so any child that is waking up tired red flag right there okay they're, they're, we're into significant problem territory and then we look at what we call daytime function. So from a daytime function point of view, you ask about things like what's their concentration like? What's their ability to focus on things like? What's their behaviour like? What are they like with regulating their emotions? Do they tend to get upset really easy or angry really easy? You know, do these kids have short fuses or drop their bundle? Um, are, is the school raising concerns? You know, so you know, their education progress is suffering. Um, and even just their physical activity. If you have a blocked nose, your ability to run around and play and those sorts of things becomes compromised. So you, you become, the, you know, they become the kid that's out there playing footy or whatever um, who just, just can't keep up. They're just getting puffed. So you get those sorts of clues. 
So, so they're sort of, you know, the daytime things that you can expand on to get some sense of what impact is this breathing problem having above and beyond nighttime. What's the impact? Um, and I think I read this from something you shared and correct me again if I'm wrong, but ADHD um, diagnosed and medicated children, I think it was something like 30% um, have a sleep disorder breathing. A lot of ADHD, ADHD kids have sleep problems. There's all sorts of different sleep problems, Okay. Um, but what we know is that 25, maybe as high as 50% of kids have a presentation that is consistent with the criteria that meets the diagnosis of ADHD who actually have sleep-disordered breathing. And that was one of the sort of my turning point papers um, was uh, 2006 that paper came out uh, where they, they had these kids who, uh, it was about a 1,000 kids, okay, and they sort of said, right, and then they, they split the kids into groups. You've got ADHD based on, you know, you tick the boxes, you don't. Um, use the, you that have ADHD, you also have uh, sleep apnea based on the sleep studies. So they're picking the sleep apnea ones out, so the worst end of the spectrum. And they said, all right, well, look, you've got sleep apnea, we're going to fix you anyway. And then out of curiosity, we're going to check you in 12 months and just see how your ADHD is going. Um, it went really well. Um, in fact, it went away. Wow. That's how, that's how their ADHD was going. Their ADHD went. So it was just like, all right. So it was a misdiagnosis. Um, and, that, and, that's, and that's playing out again and again. 25 to 50% of kids with ADHD have sleep disorder breathing. And in some kids, that, you know, it, it, they just have both. And that kid is in a scenario where two plus two equals seven. Um, in, in some countries, you cannot prescribe medication for ADHD until the sleep has been assessed. Australia is not one of those countries. Okay. Um, and there's unfortunately a perverse sort of drive to make a diagnosis of ADHD because for the schools, they get more funding. Yeah, it's all about funding. Yeah. So, so the schools are, you know, unfortunately going, oh, your kid's got ADHD. Mm. We'll get them, get them assessed by the, you know, the psychologist, psychiatrist or paediatrician. And they think, yeah, you've got no, no one goes, you know, looking for a differential diagnosis, which is, you know, what you should do. Not malicious by them either. They want the funding because they're having trouble de- dealing with a difficult kid. Yeah, yeah, but this is the irony of it is that that extra funding they get is far more than what it would cost yeah. to go and fix this kid expeditiously and actually cure the child rather than medicate. Change your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, so, and that, that sort of flows into it. So, yeah, so from a dental point of view, like I said, you know, you can keep it really easy, you, you, then you can expand on that. Mm. Um, so that's sort of your broad history thing. And you can ask about other things because then there's other things that, that link in. So you can ask about uh, does the kid have hay fever and allergies? because that contributes to a blocked nose, which contributes to mouth breathing, sleep disordered breathing. Um, do they have asthma? Because you've got asthma, you're more likely to be, as a kid, you're more likely to be a snorer. You're more likely to have sleep disordered breathing if you have asthma. You're also more likely to have hay fever. So either way, you're more likely to end up needing to see an ENT if you've got asthma as a kid. And interestingly, just as an aside, when we go and fix these kids, take their tonsils and adenoids out, there can be a significant improvement in their asthma mm. control too. Um, so, you know, we're helping them above and beyond, you know, the upper airway. It's actually their respiratory system that improves as well. So that's, that's a, you know, a, a good sort of broad brushstroke with regards to kids, just from a history point of view. From an examination point of view, sometimes you can hear these kids down the corridor. 
you can hear them breathing. It's that Darth Vader heavy breathing thing. There's your first clue. And you go, oh, they got a cold? Mum goes, oh, no, they always like this. You go, well, that's not normal. Mm. All right? And then you look at them, okay? So you look at their face and you can see the dark circles under their eyes and they look tired and they look sullen uh, and exhausted. Their mouth is open. They've got dry lips, okay? They might have a dolicofacial appearance that is out of keeping with what you're looking at mum or dad in terms of what you would have expected from a bit of genetics, and you start to go, all right, this isn't quite right. They might have a crease across their nose because they've been rubbing their nose a lot from their allergies. They might have just snot pouring out through their nose. So you start to get those clues. And then you start to go, all right, well, let's go and have a look inside the mouth. And you sort of have a look. And as you said, from a dental point of view, you might notice they go, oh, they're grinding their teeth. Or they've got changes that look like reflux. Reflux is uh, overrepresented in kids that have sleep disordered breathing. And it's not necessarily symptomatic reflux, reflux in terms of uh, heartburn, indigestion, burning type stuff. Um, it can just be a passage of a small amount of acid coming onto those back molars and giving you that sort of classic molar erosion that you sort of go, you know, this kid's got reflux. And then you go beyond, you go and you start looking at other things. You look at their skeletal form. Are they class two? Are they class three? Do they have a narrow maxilla? They, there's a tendency to get a class two um, because of mouth breathing. There's a tendency to get a class three because of big tonsils. And then you look at the soft tissue. Uh, sorry, you look at the, the maxilla and, you, you know, the intermolar width is, is reduced. And you go, wow, this, this maxilla is really constricted. It's, it's not growing out very well. And... Then you go and look at the back of the throat and, and get an idea of the tonsils, which is, is what you asked me about before. <clears throat> so from a tonsil point of view, um, what counts is the functional space. So um, you have the size of the throat and the size of the tonsils, and then what's, in what's left over is the functional space. So you could have what are physically tonsils in a big space that cause no problems. You could have small tonsils in a small space that cause all sorts of problems. So from that point of view, the, um, the size of the tonsils is part of the story. And when we look at tonsils, roughly speaking, we break it up into grades. And the simple grading system is to look at them in terms of quartiles. So we look at the space that's available and do the tonsils collectively take a quarter of the space? That's what we would call a grade one. They take um, between a quarter to a half is a grade two, uh, half to three quarters is grade three, and then over three quarters is grade four. Now, generally speaking, and this is only generally speaking, um, when it comes to grade four tonsils, 98% of them from an airway point of view will need to come out. So it's a very high chance grade four tonsils are going to come out. Grade three tonsils, it's around about 80%, okay, 80 to 90%, so again, very high. Grade two tonsils becomes a 50-50 proposition, and you go by symptoms. So if the kid, for example, is uh, snoring with sleep apnea, waking up tired, major functional issues during the day or night, much lower threshold to take out those grade two tonsils versus a kid um, that's that's functioning on a much better level. Uh, grade one tonsils almost never need to come out from a um, airway point of view. I mean, never say never, but it's almost never. Um, so, so you get an idea of just sort of the tonsil bit. Now, the bits that you won't get any idea about is, is obviously what's going on upstairs, which is the nose bit, because you can't look in there with any great sense of, of, of cleverness um but that's okay that's what we're 
Is there any way we can assess that, like um, uh, deviations if you're closing one nose, stuff like that, but that's not really relevant? Yeah, so you can do those sorts of things. But again, it, it's, it's, it's pretty non-specific and doesn't have a great degree of accuracy. Um, but what you may do is you may, in a way, inadvertently find some problems because of your x-rays. So if you've done an OPG or you've done a lateral KEF or if you've got a CBCT machine um, and you're doing it for dental reasons, you may pick up things if you know what to look for. So on an OPG, um, you can see if the septum is straight or crooked to some degree of accuracy. It's not mm, perfect. Mm. Don't, don't, don't rely on it, but you can get that. And you can sort of get some impression if you know what you're looking for at these things called turbinates, which are nasal swellings that come from the side walls and you get some impression of whether they're big or not and what sort of space they're occupying within the nasal passages. If you're really clever and you know what you're doing, you can actually see the adenoids oh, on wow. OPG. I did not as know well. that. Um, I, I did all right in radiology too. So uh, you got to can you post something and we'll share it with some adenoids on an OPG? <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to trawl through to find a good one because usually your, your exposure is usually not aimed at that. Um, but if you think about an OPG, if you think about it, it, it is a lateral X-ray. Right? So you're just starting here. So you actually get that lateral there as you start. Um, so if you, when you have, go look at your next OPG, go look at the spine. You'll see the spine on both sides and that's, and that covers, and you follow that spine through, so that means you're actually going all the way into the nasopharynx, which sits in front of the spine once you go above the palate level. Of course, that makes sense. That, that, uh, yeah. That's where your adenoids yeah, are. Yeah, okay, I can imagine that, of course, yeah. I never thought of it yeah. that way. That's great. Yeah. Um, and, but... That's all right, but look, you might have your lateral kef, you know, which is more sort of, you know, easier to interpret and so forth. But but all these plain film X-rays are prone to error when it comes to interpreting things such as the adenoids. In fact, um, the research shows that uh, one study, what they did is they got uh, a group of uh, lateral kefs and gave them to radiologists, um, and they'd already scoped the kids to sort of see what was going on, and sort of said, look, you know, tell us what you think about these adenoids. And the radiologist, and it's, it's, it's not the radiologist's fault, it's a function of the X-ray, um, got it right about half the time. So when the adenoids were big, they called them big about half the time. When the adenoids were small, they called them small about half the time. So it's kind of like tossing a coin in terms of interpreting those plain films. CBCT, on the other hand, is very clear pictures. And, 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 and to me, that is definitely, you know, if you happen to be doing them for whatever reason, you might have a CBCT machine. Um, if that captures the airway um, in your windows that you're using, that can be a really useful thing in terms of an additional level of screening uh, for an airway problem. But I always emphasize it's screening. You're not dying. In adults and children or is this? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never I never use x-rays to diagnose an airway problem or to assess the airway, never, because I don't need to. And, and the reason I don't need to is because I've got the tools and I've got the patient in front of me um, that those tools are suited for. So I put my telescopes in and I look at the real deal. So there's, there's, there's no interpreting x-rays. It's, 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 it's clinical assessment. So it's part of the examination rather than it being an investigation. Um, so, you know, people sort of say, oh, you know, when, when should I do a CBCT? And I say, well, whenever you feel it's dentally appropriate, but I don't need There it. was some talk about using that to assess the airway for adults and sleep apnea. Um, I believe the evidence was not so conclusive. Is that right? Um, but, well, the, the problem is that it's a static picture of a dynamic structure and the picture will look different whether the person is 
lying or sitting. Same people. So they've done this. They, they, they lie down, take the picture, sit up, take the picture. Different measurements. Uh, that looks different at different stages of respiration and it looks different if that person happens to swallow at the time. So all those variables um, contribute to it being uh, n- not entirely you know, accurate um, measurement in terms of what's needed. Suggestive but definitely not conclusive. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. I, just getting back to the arch form changes that we might see in a, in a patient, um, high palate, uh, narrow constricted maxilla, potentially class two um, or even class three if it's adenoid issue. Um, what ages? Uh, tons- oh, sorry, tons- tons- tonsil issue. Yep. Um, what ages are we thinking about these kinds of things? Young. I mean, from, from an airway point of view, forget about the arch form for a moment. Yeah. Um, from an airway point of view, any stage, any age. Okay. Um, in terms of when you start to see these dental things, I mean, I think the first thing that, that's important, especially given the nature of your audience, is you need to realise that we're talking about something that is not fully accepted, not fully agreed upon, and, and often argued about. Um, so there are different schools of thought and, and with regards to whether airway problems contribute to orthodontic problems. Yeah, can you expand and, on and, that and a little bit? bit? Well... It, it, it's basically, like I said, it's, it's just schools of thought. There, there's one school of thought that says that uh, the development of your jaws is purely genetic and, and so forth. And there's another school of thought that says that environment's got a lot to do with it. Um, but the reality is you can't divorce the two. It, it's a synergy of both. Um, you know, it, it's the, the, the analogy that I use when we talk about these things is cancer. Um you know, cancer is a, g- a disease of your genetics um, in terms of partly the genetics you've got in terms of what makes you susceptible to cancer but also what protects you from cancer and then whether you expose yourself to the things that you will be susceptible to. So for some people that smoke cigarettes, um, they will never, ever get cancer because they've got the best genetics that protect them against from all the things that, that do it. Those people that don't have that protection, they get cancer. So, you know, so it's not like everybody that smokes doesn't get cancer. Likewise, not everybody that mouth breathes gets an orthodontic problem. Um, so you don't need to prove that it's a 100% thing um, in terms of it, it happening. And the thing that, that I see, because I have so many of ref- my referrals that come from dentists, um, is that I, I just see way too many um, narrow maxillas and class twos um, and so forth for it to, in my mind, for it to be uh, a coincidence. And it also makes sense from a mechanical point of view as well. So, well, if you look at the, look, if you look at the equilibrium theory um, with regards to orthodontics, which I know, again, you know, people argue about um, and, and so forth, um, you know, it, to me, it doesn't, it's, it's not rocket science. If some, someone's walking with their mouth open, jaws down, the, the vectors of push and pull means that those jaws are not going to go outwards. They're, they're going to stay inwards and the, the face is going to grow long. Um, we see that in a medical condition. So there's a medical condition called craniosynostosis. So that's where the suture bones of the skull um, in babies, uh, infants and so forth, they, it fuses too early. So it's supposed to stay soft, so stay soft so as the brain grows. Um, the skull can move outwards. Um, but if it fuses, then what happens is that it, that causes growth um, in a perpendicular direction to where it's fused. 
So if you're a mouth breather and your vectors of force are therefore are inwards, then your head goes up and down. You know, it's just like if you've got something in your hand, you know, like a hot dog or something, and you were to squash it, it goes up and back. Or, you know, use a dental example, toothpaste. You put a toothpaste in your hand, you know, and have the cut the bottom off and take the lid off and you squeeze it. The stuff goes up and down. It's the same with mouth breathing in terms of what happens to the face. It's got to grow somewhere, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, But as I also say, at the end of the day, this argument doesn't matter because whether, whether, whether airway problems cause orthodontic problems is irrelevant because yep. there's an airway problem. Still got problem. airway problems, yeah. Still got an airway so, problem. So... So there's bigger things to worry about, although these things are very important in us dentist minds. Um, you know, there, there's behavior, there's ability to learn, there's everything, yeah, really. Well, look, so. As much as I love dentistry and working with dentists, I'm, I'm not a dentist, okay? Um, and I, so I don't say this disparagingly, but basically at the end of the day, we're talking about a kid's brain is not working properly. Um, do you really think in that scheme of, of pecking order that what happens to the teeth and the jaw really matters as to clinical decision-making, who cares, you know? Um, it also shows the importance of this, though, and the importance of us being in a situation, yeah, we can do great things, we can save teeth, but we're not saving lives, but we can impact on a, on a patient, particularly a child's life, if we can pick this up yep. um, or at least get them to someone like yourself who, who needs to assess it properly. Yeah, and, look, and often the parents are blindsided to it as well, and I think that's an imp- another important thing um, for, for your listeners is, is that you need to get your communication skills up so that you can explain this in a certain way. So, um, and, you know, one of the ways I suggest that, you know, people can approach these things is, you know, something along the lines of, look, you know, obviously you've come to see us about the teeth today and so forth, but we actually, you know, we go further than that. Uh, you know, the teeth are connected to the jaws, which is obviously related to everything around it. Um, so we're really focused on breathing because, we know that if there's a breathing problem, we can see a higher rate of dental problems. So if they're mouth breathing, they're going to get a dry mouth. They're going to get, um, uh, you know, teeth grinding. They're going to get the, the reflux changes. They're going to get uh, gingivitis because of the mouth breathing. They're going to get, um, you know, hypomineralization can happen as well. Um, it's tied in with you know, sleep disordered breathing. So you can get all these sorts of knock-on effects. And they say, you know, this is not our territory to, to make a diagnosis, but... I don't want to be the person that misses something. And from what I've, 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 I've seen and then asked you about, there's enough clues here at the moment that makes me worried. Um, worried enough that I think you need to go and see someone knows more about this than I do. And if they say everything's okay, that's all right. At least we know we're not missing anything. But if they, they, they agree and that we've found these problems, well, thank goodness we found it now so that we can sort it out now and we haven't missed the boat. Yeah, absolutely. And it is important the way you say it because, um, one, they also may go to a GP and may find be told that it's not that important. Yeah. Um, how yeah. do you combat that kind of thing? Um, look, it's tricky. It's tricky because and I post about this this so much to try and get the message through. And, and the reality is um, I, I'm medically trained. My, my mum was a GP and until she retired. When I, when I go and do talks and so forth in terms of people hearing what I have to say and then taking it on board and then acting upon it, the dental profession does a much better job of it than the medical profession does. And I think in part it's because 
you guys get it more because you can see it from the dental point of view and you understand and appreciate the dental consequences far more than medical people do because we're not trained for it. Um, you know, you can see them struggling in your... Yeah, we can see physical changes. Yeah. And I think the physicality, the sign as opposed to, uh, well, yeah, we can physically see it. So, it's hard to avoid once you understand and once you know what to look for. Sort of once it's seen, it can never be unseen. So, and then again, the next problem is, in, as we said at the beginning, is the medical paradigm is sickness. And they'll go, oh, they haven't had tonsillitis, it's Okay. So, you know, case, case in point, I'm actually I'm going to post about this at some stage, but um, I saw a kid um, uh, recently who two years ago had been referred to me by the dentist, um, and that was for mouth breathing and snoring. And um, the family um, had made the appointment and then thought, oh, that was the dentist. I might just go and ask my doctor. Um, and the doctor said, don't worry about it. They're going to outgrow it. Um, two years later, I see that kid. Um, again, dentist has said, you need to go and get this looked at. They come in and, and the family goes, um, we should have come two years ago because um, we were told that they were going to outgrow it. They didn't outgrow it. Um, now we've got these jaw problems. The, the teeth aren't growing properly. Uh, Behaviour is becoming a problem. His sleep is erratic and so forth and we're kicking ourselves for, for for you know listening to what someone else told us um, so but you know it gets tricky because you don't want to be the person that criticizes criticizes colleagues you know, don't want to be the one saying well look you know well that one was right and that one was wrong um even though you know that that may, may be the, the the reality to it so you've got to you've got to find that sort of diplomacy in, in managing those situations when you're dealing with patients um, and that's what I'm going to be when you ask me this question too, is diplomatic. Um, you know, the, the way that you do that, again, is, is that, um, you know, I guess from, from a medical point of view, you don't, but, you know, you sort of feel professionally embarrassed that you were the one that missed it. You know, it's just like, oh, what do you mean that, you know, someone else has found this? You know, I saw this kid last week and they were fine and, and so forth. No, no, there's nothing wrong with them is the natural response. Um you know, this, then this is the problem with, with, with our education is, is that, you know, we split teeth and body into two and then, you know, all of a sudden we know everything and except teeth and you know nothing except teeth. Um, dentists know much more about airway than I think is, is, is given credit for from the medical community. Um, so how do you deal with it? Um, it it's not easy uh, is the short answer. Um, you just got to prep the parents and just say, look, you know, you know, I, I, I've done training in this. Um, I've, I've, I've listened, listened to people talk. I've read books on this, uh, and so forth. Um, this is actually an area of interest of mine um, because it relates so much to dentistry. Um, and you know, GPs are fantastic, but they can't know everything about everything, and they certainly know next to nothing about teeth. Um, I know next to nothing about teeth. I'm not dentally trained. You want to make me the dumb person in the room? Start talking teeth, okay? Now, I can talk the talk and walk it for a certain period of time and, you know, fumble my way through it to a certain point, but eventually you're going to, you're going to find me out. Um, but, I mean, the dental stuff that I know, it's not general ENT training either. You know, this has come about because of part of the pathway of 
going to dental clinics uh, after hours and sitting down and being at dental courses and stuff and listening to talks and, and so forth and hearing what, you know, pedodontists and periodontists and, and prosthodontists and everything are talking about. And then I'm sort of going, oh, you know, I'm getting these little pieces, you know, because I, I, I've got a pretty good picture of the puzzle now. I know how it all links together and how it all works. But every now and then I just get another little little snippet that just goes, ah, that slides into there a bit better now. Um, you know, and that's not a normal thing to do from an ENT point of view. This is, I mean, there's nothing about what I'm doing that's normal from an ENT point of view. Um, my, my well, that's something I, I think we all appreciate very much is that we recognize you're making an effort to train dentists in understanding this and treating this condition. You're helping more kids than you can see by training the broader community of dentists to identify it and then to work with um, ENTs, um, obviously, who, who are dealing with this in the same way. Um, I, I think the way you just spoke about speaking uh, uh, telling the parents about seeing perhaps a GP but setting them up saying, look, they, they may or may not have this understanding, I'm focusing on this and the rest of it. I, one of the things I've done recently and um, interesting, I did just before this interview so I didn't have it with me but I gave them uh, your book, <laughs> pretty effective way to um, teach a, a, a parent about what I'm worried about. Yeah, and that was part of why I wrote the book is it, to make it readable. Um, you know, and in the beginning of the book, it talks about that, you know, someone is choking your child at night analogy. Um, just you know, because you know, on one level it's confronting, but basically it just cuts through, um, you know, the, the whole. I'm not sure about this, um, you know, because the other thing they'll ask me as a follower said, "Oh, you know, when should we fix this?" And I said, "Your child's choking at night. When do you want to fix it?" And you know, all of a sudden it's just like, you know, it just brings them into the present moment and, and, and the reality of it, and that's not to sort of intimidate them and so forth. Um, and it's not their fault that they don't know, but they've got to get it and they've got to get it in a hurry because my job and responsibility is to get that kid sorted quickly. And the only way I can do that is to have the parents let me do it. Um, and, you know, the only way, that, you know, that, um, you know, the reluctant parents, you know, some parents come in and just go, um, kid snores at night with your big tonsils, when are you going to take them out? That, that's easy. The ones that come in and go, oh, I don't really know why I'm here. I'm not really worried about anything, but the dentist has said I should come because of this, this, and this. You know, they're the ones that I've got to reprogram in a hurry um, for the sake of their child. Um, it's so important. That's the same for any anyone, for the medical, for dental, where you have to raise their awareness enough for them to own the problem and deal with the problem, whether it's, you know, pediatrics or, or just dental, general dental. And communication is so critical for yeah, that. I is. bang on about that a lot and, and it's really important. Can I ask a question? And I, I'm sure you've covered it many times in your post, but I want to get this broadly um, out there is um, how should a dentist go about it they've identified a kid that they think has an airway sleep disordered breathing issue um where's the referral pathway from and what yep. should they do okay so um as, as, from just so people fully understand this i mean this is as we speak at the moment um you know rules can change but a a dentist okay so not a hygienist or a therapist um but a dentist can sign off on a referral to an ent directly just like you can refer to an oral maxillofacial surgeon, you can refer to an ENT surgeon directly. So that's the first thing. And from a Medicare point of view, which is all what referrals are about, it's 100% equivalent to a GP referral, okay? 100% equivalent. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing I would counsel, though, is don't just refer to the ENT around the corner because they're around the corner. Um, If that ENT happens to be the one that does throat cancer, they're not going to know much about teeth grinding and cardiotrogeminal reflex. Likewise, um, if they're the ear specialist, okay, they're not going to get that excited. The other thing to understand, um, to be honest, from an ENT point of view, taking out tonsils and adenoids is probably like scaling teeth, okay? It's, 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 it's at the bottom end of the, of, of, of the spectrum of excitement. You know, it's really tedious, you know, boring work. Um, I love doing it because I know the differences it makes us. So, you know, for me, I, I get, you know, I just immerse myself in it. Um, but for a lot of people, it's boring. They want to get on and sort of, you know, they're the cases that you do so you can get those out the way um, and get on to the real, you know, meaty stuff. So again, that's the thing that makes me different is, is that I I, I I don't mind doing a whole day of just, you know, pulling out tonsils and stuff. Um, just every kid that, that, that I, you know, has, that needs it, that benefits. So what you need to find, and it depends what you're dealing with. You're like, if you're dealing with adults, um, and it's sleep apnea, well, you need to find the adult sleep apnea surgeon. If you're dealing with kids, you need to deal with the ENT that deals with kids and breathing problems. Um, if you sort of, you know, heard everything that I've said and take it on board and you do a referral to someone without really sort of appraising whether they're the right person um, for what you need, then you'll start to get the feedback of, oh, there's nothing wrong with them, there's nothing wrong with them. And that can undermine the confidence that the family have in you because they've, they've you know, got a, a lot of trust in you and, and so forth. So I think, you know... This Not is, to mention that kid will never get treated. Well, that's the problem. So, and, and you may, They'll never go back. Yeah. You may lose that family to another dental clinic, you know, that, you know, and so forth. And, you know, so that can, that can you know, you can, you can get, get messy. Um, but, you know, I think that applies in general to any specialist you're going to work with. I think, you know, um, you can ask around, see who else is, you know, using who and who's happy and those sorts of things. But don't just refer blindly. You want to be, you know, referring to people that are on the same page as you. And if, you know, and this is what I do, you know, if I get a referral and, and I find nothing wrong, I don't just say, and because this is out there, say, look, you know, I don't know why they're bothered that, you know, there was nothing wrong to start with. You've wasted your time coming here because that, that's, that's a response sometimes, you know, and say, look, you know, we've got good news. You know, I can see why the dentist is worried. The good news is having a look is that um, the things they were worried about, we're okay. Um, we can just sit back. It's, it's all right. We haven't missed anything here. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's, that's a professional way to deal with it. Um, yeah, that's uh, and that's a broad thing that that goes for pretty much any one and anything. If you have a patient, anyone that's a general dentist that is working with specialists, um, you want to find someone that's 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 right technically for what you need, but also has got you know a bit of respect and, and and so forth. You know, from from you know one colleague to another, um, in terms of how they they manage the patient. So the patient can come back and say. Oh look! Thank you for sending us there. The good news is they didn't find anything wrong, but it was good to make sure it was checked out. Is a much better thing than I don't know why you sent us there. That we saw that person for three minutes. 
and um, they basically said um, this is a waste of time. Uh, yeah, I, I can. I've heard of situations like that, and um, yeah, it's frustrating when you see then the child never gets treatment, and you and you genuinely feel they need it, although we can't diagnose it. No, no, you can't diagnose it, but as you do this more and more, you you sort of go. You get an idea. Um, you get an idea. You go, well, look, this kid's still grinding their teeth. They're still snoring at night. They've still got big tonsils. Um, you know, all right, I can't diagnose this, but at the same time, this isn't right. Yeah, you know? It's not just a coincidence. No. So let's um, change the topic a little bit. Uh, well, briefly, I want one more question actually about um, so snoring. So I asked initially, you know, should kids be snoring and uh, the answer depends but generally no if it's frequent what about adults same story so historically um you know if you sort of go back this is sort of how we made all these mistakes in kids is that we basically used adult sleep medicine and just threw it on onto kids um so in adults uh we focused on obstructive sleep apnea so that again it was the sort of dividing line in the sand so you basically either slept quietly, you snored or had sleep apnea. And if you had sleep apnea, you're in the pathology end of the spectrum. If you snored, you're in the social nuisance end of the spectrum. So it was a problem to whoever was sleeping in and around you. But, you know, you were, you were sleeping okay, you were fine. Um, and so we made that the line in the sand. And, I mean, snoring, you know, even at a social level does actually have some psychological consequences. You know, if you keep losing your partner um, because of your snoring, you know, that, that starts to have some psychological consequences. And, but from a medical point of view, uh, one of the things that we're starting to see is that those that, that have snored um, have an increased risk of having a stroke even if they don't have sleep apnea. And that's if they've been snoring for 12 years or more. So it's obviously a long period of time for snoring, but their chances of stroke go up and it actually is doubling the risk of a stroke. Wow. So it's extremely um, important. Is, is that sleep disordered breathing? Um, like are they, they're getting airway. Um, what's the well, so yeah, so let me help you. So snoring is a noise that's made for adults either because they can't breathe properly or because there's a soft tissue or something vibrating. And we think in part that it's actually a vibration effect. So the vibration of the throat is transmitted through into the neck. Uh, which goes into the blood vessels of the neck, and just that that repetitive vibration is a micro trauma type event um, that can lead to um, tearing and 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 um, plaque deposition, and then build up, and then you know blood flow issues and stroke. Um, so that's that's what we think is sort of part of the the biomechanics in terms of how it is, which is different to the sleep apnea one, where it's oxygen deprivation, uh, deprivation and inflammation as a result that drives the pathophysiology. And then the increased blood pressure and no lowering of blood pressure overnight and all the rest of that. Snoring is something that's important for us to um, identify, particularly if patients have uh, sleep apnea. We want to ask these questions. We want to um, bring these topics up in the clinic. Something, a topic that I, as a new parent, have heard a lot about recently but didn't learn a lot about is tongue tie or lingual phrenectomies. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions about that? Yeah, of course, no problems at all. It's something, as I said, I don't know a lot about and I don't think as, as dentists we get trained particularly well on it, but it's also quite controversial. What's your opinion of it and when is it necessary? Yeah, so so this, this for me as a paediatric ENT that, you know, does complex, you know, surgical things, um, 
to me, I mean, tongue ties, that is my scale and clean, <laughs> you know. It's, it's really low-end um, stuff. It, it, it's, it's really not that hard in, in my mind, and, and maybe that's just because of how my mind works. But, but I've been quite astounded just to see how it's transformed in, in, into, I mean, it's, it's, it's like smoking, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the realisation of, my God, how bad is this for you and, and so forth. Um, but and, and a lot of the claims and so forth, um, if you look at the, the research and the literature, um, the, the only place that they get any sort of airplay is on Facebook, um, you know, there's the, a complete lack of credibility that goes with a lot of what's claimed um, from a scientific research point of view. Now, that's not to say that you know that doesn't mean that people are right, but at the same time, no one's no one's no one's pulling out the papers to show this is going on. So, for me, I mean, just to explain to everybody, just in case that people get sort of confused in terms of definitions, to me, a tongue tie def- describes a clinical scenario where the movement of the tongue is compromised uh, because it is tethered to the floor of the mouth, and this is the important bit, and there is a functional problem as a result of that tethering. So the pure tethering does not make it a tongue tie. It's the functional consequence of it that makes it a tongue tie. Um, I appreciate you clearing that up because that's something that – uh, it, it took me a little bit to really understand like that concept of are they feeding well as a baby or are they speech, speech pathology and other things like that. That's when it's a problem. Just having a, a, a tether, like we have a lingual frenulum, it's, that's normal. And that's the thing is, is, is that, you know, all ties are a frenulum but not all frenulums are a tie. Um, and this, this has been one of the, the big, I think, definition problems because, you know, you'll, you'll see, see people fo- post photos and say, um, you know, do you think this is a tongue tie? And we say, well, it's a frenulum. You know, <laughs> that's all I can tell from a photo. Yeah. You can't, t- you can't say it's a tongue tie. Um, you know, there, you know, there's some that, you know, you look at it and just go, yeah, that's, that's going to be a tongue tie. Um, you know, there's no way, that, you know, that, that, that tongue is so hold, held down so much it ain't going anywhere. So, you know, from that point of view, um, you know, you, you can't really sort of say, you know, from a picture, oh, that's 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 a tongue tie with any degree of certainty, except for you know the, the really really obvious ones. So, and then in terms of the functional aspects of it, um, in terms of you know, cor- you've got to differentiate between correlation and causation too, um, and you know, association, those sorts of things. So, if we look at timelines, so breastfeeding. The sort of the background population rate of a tongue tie is, is maybe five percent, maybe ten percent. It depends on which which literature you want to read and believe, regardless of what that is. So that's defined on a physical sign. So this is a physical tongue tie. So that was an appearance one. So we're talking about a physical tongue tie and a functional tongue tie, just to keep myself not confused more than anything else. So a physical tongue tie um, is probably around about that five percentish mark of which for breastfeeding, about half, there will be a functional problem. So that, that makes it the functional tongue tie, okay? I'm just thinking this is actually a better way of describing it. I'm going to I might use this for now. Um, so from a functional tongue tie point of view, uh, that will be about half of the physical ones. So the ones that look like a tongue tie, about half of them will actually be a, a functional tongue tie um, in terms of breastfeeding problems. And in skilled lactation consultant hands of, of those ones, 
where there's a functional problem, and that functional problem can be impacting on the baby or the mum or both. Um, in a good number of them, again, about half again, um, they'll be able to get around that problem and, and get the functional aspects sorted so that things can progress. And then in the other half um, of, of those where there's a struggle, um, getting the, the tie released um, helps. Um, but even in the best of hands in the, in the clinics that do this a lot, um, the success rate when you look at the research is about 80%. So what that means is, is that we're still not great. I mean, 80% is good, but we're still not, you know, anywhere near 100% in terms of working out which ones we should have fixed and which ones fixing would have made no difference. So you always want to do no, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, of course, because uh, uh, doing that, although it's a simple procedure, it's still treatment on a baby that you may not need to do. Um, and so a lot of people worry about it, but at the same time, would you say it's something that perhaps is over-treated, under-treated, or it seems like it's actually all it's right? It's actually both. This is the problem, is that <laughs> what's happening is because the physical tongue ties uh, are being treated when there's no functional problem, that, that makes it an over-treatment. And that, because yeah. there was no functional problem as a result and the treatment goes ahead and there's no change, it's just like, well, that didn't need to be done. So, so as a result of that, um, you know, depending on how it's done and so forth, there can be problems there too. So, you know, so, that, you know, so those ones, that, that is of the over, that's where the over-treatment is. The problem in the ones that have got the functional problems, because people are seeing these physical ones getting treated where there's no benefit, then they're going, well, that's a waste of time. This whole thing's a waste of time. So in a way, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So, so there is an under-treatment as a consequence of that over-treatment in the other, other, other domain. So, so it's that, Yeah, reactionary change to the other exactly. side. So, so it's, it's actually it's a concurrent problem. So, and, and part of it is that we just don't have a healthy middle ground. We, we have extremists uh, on either side of the fence, okay, in terms of treatment and no treatment, who, you know, absolutes about everything. Um, whereas, in fact, you know, I, I just sit in the middle. I, I did a tongue tie in a baby today. Yep, you know, there you and, go. And stuff. And, and mum, mum was, you know, sure that there was nothing wrong. Um, and she said, you know, I, I've seen two pediatricians, a lactation consultant, and nobody's actually looked inside my baby's mouth and had a feel. Um, my friend's a dentist. Um they sent me here because they had a feel and got me to have a feel. I can feel it. It's not feeding properly. We released it and put it on the boob and she's gone. That feels so much better. Wow. Just, you know. So that's, you know. That's it's a massive impact too for the ones that need it, a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. So for those that, that benefit from it, it, it really is quite good. But there's a lot of it being done where, where there's no good reason to do it. And one of those no good reasons follows on to the rest of it is the just-in-case Okay. Now there are some things in medicine that we do just in case. Um, you know, we treat people's high blood pressure because if we don't, there's a case that they may have heart attack or stroke if we don't. So people will say, oh, if we don't treat the tongue tie in the baby, they're going to have speech problems. They're going to have orthodontic and jaw problems. They're going to need braces. Let's look at the numbers. Um, in those that have a physical tongue tie, 10% of those will have a speech problem. 90% won't. Um, so from that point of view, there's, there's, there's no cost-benefit analysis that, that stacks up treating nine people unnecessarily for that one that would have benefited. That one Can they be done later? 
Exactly. That one will declare themselves when the speech turns up. So wait for that one, fix it, a couple of weeks of, of speech therapy, and they're back on track again, you know. And the rest of them, they were just fine and it caused no problems. Um, from the orthodontic point of view, uh, there's there's two things. Um, the one, one thing we get is a tendency towards a class three, um, um, mandibular, um, you know, growing forwards. And a narrow maxilla. Now, the narrow maxilla, we've got, we've got a good paper by an orthodontist um, in the US called Audrey Yoon was the lead author. Um, they had 1,000 and I think 1,042 cases where they showed a pretty good correlation, not causation, but correlation between the degree of tethering, the more it was tethered, the narrower the maxilla. So, again, going with that equilibrium theory of orthodontics is that the tongue wasn't coming up. It wasn't serving as, as the natural expander uh, of the maxilla. And so forth. There's, a, you know, there's, there's some considerable flaws with that paper. Um, they only looked at one parameter and, and, you know, ignored anything else that might be going on. But you've got that sort of there. And 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 you know, but again, that won't start declaring itself until they're six or seven or eight. And it's it's not most kids. It's some kids. So again, you know, given that some orthodontists have the paradigm is that we, we don't worry about any jaw and teeth until they're twelve. Well, we don't need to worry about any tongue tie. Maybe things until they're like six or seven or eight. And if we start to see changes and we think, well, maybe it's contributing, then we're going to say, maybe this is part of the story. This is a low-end procedure um, just to sort of, you know, release some of the tension now. Um, kids still growing, good age to do it. Um, anything that progresses from here can progress favourably. Um, we don't have any research that shows that it makes a difference, but it'd be a shame to miss an opportunity to improve things if that possibly does make a difference. Um, and, you know, that's where the, we just don't have that research, you know, that, you know, and that just comes down to explaining to the parents to say, look, we don't know, but, you know, we, we've got some pretty good clues that, you know, this is part of the story. We're starting to see these changes. It's it's something that we can see is there is a functional or a physical restriction. It could be part of the story. Yeah. You know, and you can deal with it at that point, as you said. Well, so what I'm taking away from this is that um, basically if it's a functional issue when they're a baby if their feeding is an issue then it's something that may be addressed and it's in a small number of babies but it is a non-insignificant number um, but ongoing from that the other issues that we can have can generally be treated later on speech pathology when it arises and perhaps um, narrow maxilla um, you know assess that and think about that as a dentist but then you know at, at that age as opposed to broadly painting the brush well basically it's over treatment that's when it becomes over treatment you know prophylactic release um when there's no functional problem um that that's that's when it verges on um you know over treatment um and then we've got to look at the treatments that are out there too and and the consequences and one of the one of the things that i'm seeing and, and i've never seen this up until the past five to seven years um are these kids developing oral aversions from having their um frenulums released specifically unfortunately by dentists with a laser um we'd never seen these oral aversions before um the, these these kids are being traumatized um by the whole experience so in in you know in in, in my hands um if it's a baby just do it there and then put some local anesthetic in get a pair of scissors and just do it um it's, it's, they're not going to remember it um, they're going to be sore for a little bit and we're done. Laser is not a benign, comfortable thing to get done. Um, you know, anyone that's ever been burnt by anything, well, that's what a laser is. It's a burn. 
And if you're doing that in a three or a four-year-old kid, I mean, I would never do that. Three or four-year-old kid, that age group, they're not cooperative. They're, they're, to me, they're, 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 they're surgical cases. People say, oh, but you're giving a general anaesthetic to a kid and then they'll pull out the papers um, that you know, shows giving general anaesthetic to a kid causes brain damage. The problem with those papers is, is that most of those kids that were getting those anaesthetics were getting those anaesthetics for reasons that cause brain damage in their own right. Um, sleep disordered, breathing, cardiac problems, neurological problems already. So it's a flawed concept in terms of, oh, it was the anaesthetic that caused, you know, these possible brain problems. It's like, well, why were they having the anaesthetic in the first place? Oh, because of this, this and this. You go, well, wake up, wake up, sunshine. So so, so basically they're just, just sort of cherry-picking evidence out to sort of, you know, malign a general anaesthetic um, and justify uh, doing a procedure without local you know, on a kid that is, is not psychologically able to cope with the, the whole experience. That would have clear impacts on their dental health over their lifetime. If they've got an aversion, then you've lost them. For me too, like they'll come in and like I'll look in their ears, I'll look in their nose, and as soon as I go near their mouth, they're like, they're, they're, they're terrified. You know, they've really got post-traumatic stress is what they've got you know, and so forth, you know, and it's, 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 I've never seen it until the past five to seven years. And it's, it's, it's the laser phrenectomies, the growing It's interesting to that hear that because case. that is often purported to be painless. So clearly there's a bit more to that, but let's leave that, let's leave that topic. Another controversial topic. There's another one, um, Colm Hartney wanted to hear your thoughts on, um, my, uh, myofunctional type appliances. They, they claim often to avoid future orthodontics, but also often claim to avoid airway issues or dysfunction. What are your thoughts on those? And is there any basis? I'm not a dentist. I'm not an orthodontist. So, so I can't comment on the dentistry and the orthodontic side of things. I think, I think those claims need to be substantiated and proven by those making those claims in a way that is whatever you guys would, would accept as a level that of proof that that's reasonable. So I'll have to throw that one to the side just because it's, it's not my territory. Um, from the breathing point of view, however, um, what, what, what I've seen, what I've noticed, okay, is that any uh, functional appliance um, that consumes a, a fair portion of the oral cavity, um, and these usually are mouth-breathing kids, um, in those kids, um, they don't tolerate them. And the reason they don't tolerate them is because you're adding to their suffocation. You're adding to their obstruction. So they, 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 they don't keep them in at night. They don't use them. They don't wear them because they don't – they, they, can't, can't, they can't cope them. with them. Yeah, okay. They That's interesting. So yeah. um, perhaps they are effective but they don't get used. Their compliance is really low and therefore not a very um, useful – yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so from my point of view, um, you know, this, this is, yeah, this is this is this is this is David talking. Um, a lot of these kids are the mouth breathing kids. So, if we look at, at, at mouth breathing, mouth breathing again, it's like teeth grinding. Mouth breathing is not a diagnosis; it's a clinical symptom. And in eighty to ninety percent of the time, it's a clinical symptom because there is physical obstruction to the nose. Okay. So if I was to uh, put a nose plug on you, okay, and say breathe through your nose, the, the logic of that is nonsense. Right? If the kid is blocked inside their nose and we tell them to do the same thing, 
the same logic is nonsense. So any mouth-breathing kid needs to be assessed by an ENT first to see why they're doing it. And if you force a child to breathe through their nose, unless they're completely blocked yet, you'll be able to do it, but there's consequences of doing that. And without going into the boring details of it, um, one consequence is that by forcing air through the nose, basically you've got to breathe in harder. So when you suck in the air through the nose harder to overcome the resistance, you put pressure across the side uh, walls of the nose and that nose can start to collapse in on itself. And I've seen that happen with um, a dentist that was taping mouths of kids um, and the nose just collapsed. Okay. The other thing that happens is the whole cardiovascular side of things. So in these kids that are mouth breathers, around about a quarter or third of them have a, a blood flow problem and a high blood pressure around the heart. Um, when you force them to breathe through an obstruction, okay, they can do that by breathing in harder. So they suck the air in harder. But when you suck the air in harder, you also suck the blood into the thoracic cavity more too. And that blood goes into the right side of the heart um, and it gets pumped through the lungs. Um, And if they've already got high blood pressure, then that heart has to pump even harder to pump that blood through a high-pressure system. So a greater volume of blood means the heart has to pump harder. It's just, it's just one of those cardio, cardiac things. So that heart actually can start to fail. So you can actually start to damage a kid's heart by forcing breathing through an obstruction. So, so to me, they're two very good reasons not to treat mouth breathing as a symptom of anything other than obstruction. And obstruction needs to be assessed. And the only way you do that is to have a look. So mouth breathing is an ENT problem. It's not a dental problem in terms of a solution um, that's done first. That's a really good takeaway and I think something that people really, uh, we are starting to learn better and better, especially the younger generation and with what you do and what you share on Facebook, it's really helping us um, uh, understand that. Um, I want to point people uh, to a few of your, you've got a few Facebook pages um, out there. So there's a um, ENT for Dentists page and I'm going to link this. There's also a few others, Tongue Tie Oz, um, your own page, David, Dr. David McIntosh uh, and Snored to Death. Um, so people can look all them up for sure. I got a few questions um, and I, bre- I mentioned it before with um, Colm's question, but there's one more I, I want to ask is from Andrew. Um, he had a seven-year-old and he sent them to the GP um, because they had very large tonsils. They were snoring the whole works. Um, patient returned after seeing their GP saying that they were fine. How, he asks, how big can the tonsils get before they become a, a really big problem, I guess? And are they only a problem if they're causing issues like snoring and bruxism? I think we've covered a lot of that in what we've already chatted about. Hopefully we've covered it, but let's just, let's just recap because you can sort of add to the conversation. The tonsils um, get get to a certain size that they're a problem in each individual at whatever point that it becomes a problem, okay? So in some people, they'll have absolutely massive tonsils and, you know, like I said, 98% of those grade fours will come out. We'll, we'll see kids every now and then, they've got these humongous tonsils. They don't snore. They don't mouth breathe. They've got perfectly good sleep. Those kids, what I do, I do two things. I send them off for an ultrasound scan of their heart to see if they've got that blood pressure thing going on, all right? The other thing, if that's normal, all right, if it's abnormal, it's like, right, we've got a problem, we're going to fix it. The second thing I do, if that's normal, is I send them off to an ophthalmologist. And what I get the ophthalmologist to do is look into the back of the eye 
because the blood vessel changes that come with low oxygen levels, um, the, 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 the retina, so the back of the eye is called the retina, um, that is the of all the body organs, that consumes the most oxygen per gram of tissue of the whole body. So if there's an oxygen compromise, that's the first thing to go. So I get to look in the back of the eye, and if there's signs of what's called hypoxic, so low oxygen damage, bang, off we go. Because if they've got that to the retina, they've probably got it to the brain. Okay, it's just that it's subclinical, but, it, you know, I've, I've got still, a reason to go. It's proof, yeah. Yeah, but if everything comes back as normal, well, then, yeah, there can be massive tonsils that cause no problems, all right? But the scenario that you just said, you know, seven-year-old, big tonsils, and you said snoring, so already there's an airway problem. Now, whether it's because of those tonsils or not, it depend on when, you know, what one person calls big tonsils and so forth is variable. Like I'll get referrals um, and so forth, and, you know, someone said, oh, they've got big tonsils, and I look and go, well, no, not really. Um, they're actually okay. It's just what people are used to calling big tonsils versus what I call big tonsils, you know, and that's, that's, just, that's just perception. So, so the answer to your question is, um, you know, apart from the airway point of view, when else do tonsils become problems? Swallowing, okay? Um, if, if, if the kid is choking or gagging or um, has changed their diet so that they, you know, will chew meat but they'll spit it out because they can't get it past or they'll go for the soft, mushy stuff and smoothies and, and so forth, um, and so forth, and you say, oh, yeah, he's a really fussy eater. He, you know, he won't eat anything solid, but he loves his smoothies. Well, maybe he's just a survival eater, not a fussy eater, because he's worked it out, you know. Um, he's worked out. That's a really good point. I'd not heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, you know, this, this, is, this, this is the easy way to do it. The other thing that can happen sometimes um, is just having a blocked nose. And, you know, anyone that really wants to understand this in terms of what kids are living with and, and make it easy for yourself, all right, so you're not sort of, you know, too, you know, too challenged by it, get, one of the, get a nose plug or something, plug your nose and try and eat a whole meal from beginning to end with your nose blocked. See how quickly you fatigue because your mouth's open, so your mouth's going to start to dry, so you lose the lubrication, so it makes it hard to swallow. Okay. Plus, you're trying to eat, chew, swallow, breathe at the same time. Breathing wins. So there's another reason why these kids that are the so-called fussy eaters will go for the soft stuff because it's quick and easy to get down. They can get their breath back in a hurry. As an aside, that, that's often a, a patient issue with um, dentistry. They're a little bit anxious and they often actually just can't breathe very well through their nose. So the water truly affects them a lot more than others and it's something we should recognize. Yeah, Absolutely. So, so, you know, there's that side of things. So, you know, that's the other way that, you know, the big tonsils can start to do it. Um, and the other thing potentially, you know, is, 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 is you start to see an early class three change. You know, your, your genetic class threes, you'd start to see sort of age 10 or so. Um, if you're seeing it before then, you've got to start wondering, you know, why is this mandible racing ahead of itself? So, again, you know, it's you know, possibly sort of tied in with, with, you know, those big tonsils. So, um, but, you know, I mean, the simple answer to your question, to be honest, is if the kid's snoring, they're not okay. I don't, the discussion on whether it's the tonsils or not is, is a clinical decision that's made by, you know, the EMTs. The kid, is, if they're snoring, is not okay. Full stop. That kid is not okay. 
That's a really good point to get across and I think something we will face which is where we, uh, you know, a patient sees the GP like you explained before and then may come back with a, um, you know, reassured that nothing's wrong but we, if we know what we're talking about, we still need to get them to the right person and um, once we've identified that, it's important. It's, it's up to us. I think that's important too is, is that we don't want to start, you know, I, I want to, I'm, I'm working really hard to bring people together. So, so, um, you know, and part of that is just recognizing that not everybody knows what you know or what I know and, you know, and so forth and that opinions vary and so forth. Um, so you don't want to sort of, you know, be maligning, you know, people and so forth, but at the same time, uh, there needs to be some mutual respect with regards to, you know, if they go and see the GP, you know, the GP doesn't just go, oh, they're okay. It's just like, I wonder why this person thought there was a problem. I think it's okay and they don't. So there's a disagreement, you know, only one person can be right if the polls apart. Maybe I might just give this person a call and seek some clarification, just go, look, I've just seen Tommy. Um, I'm, I'm not seeing the problems that, that you've highlighted to the family, but maybe I'm missing something. You know, that that would be the professional way to do it, not the, oh, that person's wrong. Do you suggest as um, particularly because you're, you're reaching out right now to a lot of young graduates, if not students, and covering this, um, you know, as a young dentist in a new community um, with a GP who's been there for 30 years, do you suggest we ever reach out and, and discuss this kind of thing? How do, you, how do you think we should try to change that or should we not? I've been, I've been working on change for 10 years. <laughs> you can still see the impression of the brick wall, you know, on my um, which is not going to go away in a hurry. You know, it, it, it's in, in a way, I think, as I said before, the dentistry has, has absorbed this and so forth. And not because I'm, I'm just saying what people want to hear. I'm throwing the science up. You know, it, you know it, it, it's not just like, oh, I reckon this. It's like, hey, look at the science. You know, and, and, you know, he'll go, oh, brain damage, sure. Hey, here's the paper. You know, oh, teeth grinding. Here's the paper. Oh, reflux. Here's the paper, and that's the difference. Is is that you know, I I, I I sort of you know have a PubMed feed that comes through every week, um, and I sort of filter through probably every week, um, probably three hundred or so um, papers per week, and I won't read, I won't read all of them because I you know sort of start to read the title and then I'll go and look at the abstract. So you know, there's a filtering process, but you know it starts at about three hundred. Um, just to sort of just, you know, see what's out there, what's new and, and so forth so that it's contemporary. And you know, I like going back to the old stuff every now and then too just to sort of, you know, just be a little bit antagonistic and then and then. But um, I like going to, the, you know, the, um, you know, what's what's new and contemporary, what came out yesterday sort of stuff uh, and then go, bang, here's, a, here's yet another paper where they're showing this and, and so forth or here's a better understanding of that. So that it's contemporary. I've definitely got a good um, uh, outcome from what um, your page on Facebook, which is what you're talking about, where you share a lot of this yeah. stuff. Um, I appreciate that you spend the time doing that. I know you do that obviously for personal, professional reasons, but you share it. And um, of, of course, most dentists are not going to do that in an airway, particularly in the airway, let alone dentistry or any yeah. special speciality. So thank you for doing that and sharing that. And I think everyone listening to this really should follow your page. And it's not for promotion of anything other than just you're going to learn some stuff that's going to help some kids and some adults and yourself. It's Facebook. It's Facebook. It's free. <laughs> it's, you know, 
it's 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 passive learning at the end of the day i've done all the hard work for you that's great um so speaking of uh, the book as well uh, uh, th- that's a bit different i guess yeah you sell it but at the same time it's so much content and it's cheap as and uh, like i'm not you know you know we have no uh, business relationship it's just because i'm genuinely interested in and i think it's an amazing book um, so i suggest people look into that as well um, i'm going to get my back off my patient hopefully she's read it <laughs> oh, you've got to be careful I, I, I end up sending a couple to, to dental clinics because it's basically like uh we lent the book out and it hasn't come back can you send us another one i spent about <laughs> half an hour trying to figure out who i lent it to because i forgot to write it down um yeah it didn't quite get back in time for this interview but that's right <laughs> Well, look, I appreciate your time so much and I want to ask just a couple more questions. I hope some of our listeners are still there listening. Um, it's been a long one and there's been tons of information. I really appreciate it. Um, do you mind just a couple last questions? Absolutely. Of course, mate. I like to ask this of everyone and I know we're in different fields, but if you could go back to yourself, when you, so let's say when you graduated, perhaps from the, from your specialty program to change your path or to get you to where you are faster or to get you doing what you love or something more impactful faster, what would you do or change or say to yourself? I, 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 well, look, I'm probably not the right person to ask because I'm already doing what I want to do in the way I want to do it. But I, I think, you know. Then how did you find that? Uh, I fell into it. It's, 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 just, it's just one of those sort of things, you know, it's like it's, it's teaching kids how to swim. There's the pediatrics, you know, working in Darwin, there's the indigenous stuff. Uh, and then going and doing the pediatric stuff. Uh, and then, um, you know, a dentist was, you know, approached me and said, look, you know, um, I see all this stuff. I do ortho. Um, I got all these people that can't breathe properly. Um, do you reckon you can help them? It's like, sure. And then, and then the next dentist did the same thing, and then all of a sudden it just sort of you know snowballed from there. Um, you know, it, it wasn't wasn't by design at all. It's, it's just it's, it was just it just happened. But I think ultimately the, the couple of things that that you know for those those that are out there that are sort of trying to find their way in life, even though you get training in everything, you don't have to do everything. If there's things that you don't like doing, you're not going to do them well. And that's okay. There'll be someone else there that can do it. So that'd be the first thing. So just, just you know, know that you know, you learned a lot, but you don't feel that you need to do everything. Um, the second thing would be start uh, in an ideal world. And you know, this is this is more idealistic, but you know, have the mindset of basically start where you want to finish. You know, if if you've got an idea or plan of what you want to do, well, just start there. You know that you know, or start as close to there as possible. And the other thing is that um, who you were yesterday doesn't mean that's who you have to be today. So, um, you know, for, for your listeners and so forth, if you sort of have a, a change of mind or a change of heart in terms of what you're doing and how you want to do it, follow it. You know, dentistry is what you do. It's not who you are. All right. That's a very important yeah, point. Yeah, I think I think it is, and 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 yeah, probably the other thing, especially because you, from what you're telling me, you, you've got sort of new starts and, and so forth. Um, find someone that will take you under under your wing or under their wing. You know, you 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 get taught a lot, but you don't get taught everything. And if you've got someone out there that that's got a few runs on the board, that's willing to sort of just hold your hand a bit and, and take you through stuff and just help you get better at things, that that you know that that's 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 really valuable. Yeah, it's a lot quicker to learn from someone else's mistake than to do it yourself. Absolutely, and and probably that's the other one is 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 the at the end of the day, 
All right, you've sort of already said this. All right, so just sort of just reflect on this um, for you, for your dentist out there. At the end of the day, if you stuff up, the patient loses a tooth. Okay, I stuff up, the patient loses their life. Okay, so keep your stress and anxiety and and so forth in check. All right, I'm not underplaying what you do. What you do is very important. But at the end of the day, they lose a tooth. Eh, they lose a tooth. All right, I kill someone. That's a bigger deal. Big deal. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, um, just. I think that's a great point as well, and it's something that you know in dentistry, it's it's pretty well known to have some significant mental health issues. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety, and it is important that although that's very real and very much needs to be managed and all the that stuff, we need to also realise that these patients will be okay, and and we'll get through those situations. We all have those situations where things don't go to plan, particularly as graduates, and. And we will get through it. So, and reach out to someone. Reach out to you know me and you. <laughs> um, I don't know how much I can help, but <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm quite happy because the nice thing about me is at the end of the day, I'm pretty neutral because I, I, I don't have any. I mean, half the time, you know, when people have issues with people, I don't even know who that person is, um, and so forth. So it's not like I've got any sort of fear of someone that's you know the the professor of this or the guru of that because like I don't even know who this person is. It's like a confessional. We just tell David McIntosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty neutral from that point of view. And look, I have had people, you know, I've had people that have been in really dark, terrible places that, you know, it was just, it was that, that, you know, I'm happy to talk to those people and, and so forth. So, yeah, so I think, you know, just, just keep your, your stress and anxiety in check just in terms of, you know, relative to what you're doing, you know, there's other people out there dealing with with much bigger, you know, things that can go wrong in a much bigger way. So don't don't beat yourself up. You know, the only people that don't get complications are the people that don't that don't do anything. You know, so yeah. So I guess you know, just to sort of be the sort of we said we were going to be a bit touchy feely and huggy at the end of it. So <laughs> yeah, there's the hug. <laughs> So I've got one more question. This one is from um, Instagram and it's fairly broad. It's um, do periods of high stress cause parafunction or is it generally an airway issue? Okay. So um, let's just talk about kids for starters, okay? Perfect. Um, we, we, adults, adults this, this, this translates across as well. Yep. So um, I'm going to spin the question around a bit. So by parafunction, what we're talking about is bruxism. You know, from a dental point of view, yep. that's, that's yep. what we're basically drilling this down to and the, the classical teaching is that anxiety is the reason that kids grind their teeth and adults too mm-hmm. all right so the first thing is let's go backwards let's start with our starting point being different so our starting point is a child has sleep disordered breathing whether that's mouth breathing or snoring or sleep apnea they've got some form of sleep disordered breathing and let's take that population group and let's compare it to a population group that um, have perfectly sound sleep. They've got no airway problem at all. And let's look at the rates of anxiety in, in those two populations. Um, the rates of anxiety are much higher in those kids with sleep disordered breathing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the reason that happens is because um, basically they're not breathing properly at night um, their brain is going into panic mode. Mm. So their brain is learning to worry, just to keep it simple. And if we expand that out further, and this, again, applies to kids, adolescents, um, adults, if we look at mental health on a broader level, it's not just anxiety. Depression goes up. 
schizophrenia goes up, mm. bipolar affective disorder goes up. So these are all psychiatric conditions that go up when you have some form of sleep disorder breathing across the ages and stages. So the sort of you know observation that kids that are grinding their teeth at night um, are the stressed and anxious kids. Hmm. They're also the airway kids. Yeah, it's a massive crossover. It's 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 that you know correlation and, and what we call clustering effect. Um, we sort of depending on what you look at as a starting point. So if you look at sleep disordered breathing, that clusters with anxiety. Hmm. Okay. Um, if you look at anxiety, that clusters with bruxism. You look at bruxism, that clusters with sleep disorder breathing. Then these things cluster together. Yep. Um, so when you have these disease clusters, <coughs> you start to go, what's the common link? Mm-hmm. So the common link is the sleep disorder breathing um, is a risk factor for anxiety and it's a risk factor for the teeth grinding. The problem is people look at the anxiety because that's the daytime behaviour and say, well, they're grinding their teeth at night because they're worried during the day. Mm. Um Kids don't really have much to worry about mm. in the normal circumstances. Now, we do see kids that come from harsh backgrounds and those sorts of things, and, yeah, sure, they've got anxiety problems. Um, so you're not dismissing that. Mm. But that's not most kids. Yeah, it's much less prevalent okay. than it is in adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not most kids. Um, so from that point of view, uh, you know, is it, is it anxiety and stuff? Well, again, why are they anxious? Are they anxious again because they can't breathe properly? So, um, you know, I'm inherently biased, but but I think, you know, sleep and, and breathing problems during sleep are so dismissed um, in, from, a, from a healthcare point of view. Um, we, we miss it. And because we miss it, it doesn't show up on the radar when people start asking these questions about people yeah. and start drawing associations. Um, so that if you pull back um, and so forth and you go, all right, what else is going on in these kids' lives? Well, let's go to their sleep. What's going on in their sleep? Yeah. So and then start to find problems. It's always an important question. Yeah. I, I think it's a crucial question. I think every every kid that comes through in front of a healthcare professional that needs to be, a, you know, well, every per- patient really, how's your sleep? Mm. That's a good one and that's a great takeaway. It's something that um, I've uh, certainly learned from you and your books and um, particularly your posts on Facebook and it's something I ask a lot and and it's uh, the more you do talk about it, the more you find these issues exactly the way you've explained them. So um, definitely some that's a massive takeaway. Thank you for that. Well, let's let's put a bow on it with uh, one last question and this one um, I want you to you think about what you would – Get, you can get into every ear of um, dental students and graduates, not literally, but imagine you could, and you could teach them one thing. You want dentists to know something. Um, I'm sure it's going to be to do with pediatrics and ENT. What would you want them to know and what would you want them to do? In a catchphrase, don't ignore the snore. That's perfect. Thank you so much for your time, David McIntosh. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate everything you've done. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt, for having me. It's 2021. We're used to cloud-based software enhancing every aspect of our lives. But what about something we use every day, our dental practice management software? Imagine something rethought from the ground up, designed for intuitiveness, leveraging what's possible in today's technology. Something that optimizes our daily workflows and does what modern dentists need to stay competitive and connected. Principal practice management software is this. 
intelligent, efficient, and intuitive. Because it's 2021 and you can expect something more. Go to principal.dental to learn more. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.